the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffle Podcast, Episode 79. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Good morning, my friend. Good morning. How is it over there in Austin? It is, it has rained for 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> it has um, not. <laughs> it kind of has. Really? And, yeah, it has. It's been raining for um, over uh, about a month now. And no one is complaining here in, in Austin because we had such a dry summer. Ah. So, but I mean, it is very wet. And now I think there's just like a layer of mold growing onto everything because I don't get a lot of um, seasonal allergies, but I think I'm allergic to mold. I've never had this tested, but it seems like whenever there's a prevalence of mold, I start getting um, a little mold attack. Yeah. Yeah. And so last night uh, I was trying to... I went back out into the studio after dinner, which is not something I always do, but I had some other things I was really liking. I was kind of jamming on and I wanted to finish and I got the worst headache ever, like the nausea inducing kind. Yeah. And I had to just come in and take something and go to bed. But it was just one of those things too, you know, when you, when you feel crappy or you get sick or whatever, you know, and then you wake up and you're just like, Oh my God, I'm so glad I don't drink anymore. (laughs) I basically feel that way every morning. Yeah. I do feel that way every morning and I am still grateful every morning. It's still not old, but it's especially reinforced when I, when I'm feeling under the weather or a headache, especially, you know, because I, I would always get headaches when I drank sometimes even while I was drinking. And I just would think I just need to drink more. Mm-hmm. So that my headache goes away. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's great medicine. That's really good medicine. I used yeah. to have a, I used to have a customer that she'd come in and always say, Oh, I have a cold, I'm not feeling great and drink. And yeah. I would be like, and even, even then I would think like, really, you think that's good? Do you think that's good when you have a cold? Cause you're already so run down. Right. And then she'd, you know, get a couple bottles to go. And I was like, okay, yeah. well, that's her medicine. And and I really, right. I mean, it occurred to me, but it never sunk in that like, that's probably not a good idea, but mm. some, there was a flash. No, <laughs> I it can't made- even imagine drinking while I'm sick now, like, or drinking at all. But you know, yeah, especially while you're sick. I know. I know. Oh. Well, it's raining here. It started, you know, since we're going to talk about the weather, let's do our small talk. Um, yeah. <laughs> it started raining here yesterday. And, um, there's like a flock of dumb turkeys in my my field right now that I can see while I'm chatting with you. Is that what they're called? That's their names? A flock of turkeys? No, dumb. Are they dumb? (laughs) No, they're just, they're just dumb, Sandra. 
They're just not real smart. (laughs) Maybe that was a species of turkey, dumb turkey. No, I'm just being mean to them because they get stuck on my roof and they're so dumb. They don't know how to get off. Like they got up there, but they can't figure out how to get off the roof. So then the rest of the gaggle of them are like just going insane for the one that's on the roof. Um, when babies oh, get stuck hearts. behind something, um, the, you know, they just, they're, they're loud and not bless their little turkey hearts, mm-hmm, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't love the turkeys, but they're so dumb that they're just out in the middle of the rain, like huddled together when there's like many trees that they could be underneath. Mm, they don't figure that stuff out. So <laughs> oh, they're just kind of out there getting pelted right now. <laughs> Um, that's my turkey talk for the episode. I uh, just that's what's going on in Farmville, USA over here. Um, but I want to share. I'm just going to jump in because I just want to share, Sandra. Okay, go ahead. I got I'm to meet Amanda you. Grace this weekend. I know. I saw the photos. I love her. Oh, <laughs> she yeah. is exact. I mean, I feel like I know her so well because of our conversations and our texts and our WhatsApp messages that we leave one another. Um, but to actually like see her in person and ha- be a student of hers and watch her speak to the group, lead us in meditation, lead us with our exercises. Like I had no idea really how she does her workshops. You know, I had an, I, I thought I had an idea. Um, and some of that is there, but really how she creates the container to hold the people, to hold the stories, to help us express ourselves was an honor. It was great. It was awesome. So I told her you said hello. It looked so amazing. <laughs> it looked amazing. It was cool. And, you know, I, I don't think I can't speak for everyone, even though I know I like to do that. Um, you know, of course, we all probably brought, brought too much. She told us what to bring. And I wish I would have just listened and did what she said because I brought all this other stuff that I did not need. And Mm. we made art for two solid days from 10 to five every day. That's a lot of making. Yeah. I was so exhausted when I came home, but like happily exhausted. Uh. And, um, you know, to learn from her and to watch her do the thing that I watch her do on Instagram or on her videos that she shares, um, was just great. was just wonderful. Mm. So I know by the time that this airs, um, she's having a workshop in San Diego and, um, she has a couple openings for her raw visual journaling workshop and people can check that out on her website, um, Mm. which I think is amandagraceart.com. I'll look that up, but yeah, so that was my weekend. It was amazing. It was tons of art making and connection and getting messy, which is really hard for me. Mm hmm. It wasn't that hard though, if I would just do what she said, Mm. you know, when I got Mm -hmm. in my own way, that's when it became hard. Mm -hmm. So by day two, I was really like, no, you need to just submit to just do what she's saying and learn from that. So that when you go home, I mean, I could morph it and that's the idea. I'll go do what I want to do with it. But I really wanted to absorb her techniques and her tools and how she adheres things and image transfers. I mean, there was just so many things. So it was great. It was great. Mm. What did you do this weekend? Or what has been going on with you? Uh, this weekend was uneventful for me. I, I worked in my studio a lot. I've been, I have been uh, 
immersed in my studio. Mm. Um, what you yeah. So that's it. I've just been making a lot of garments. I've been stitching. Mm, you're in that groove. I am in that groove. Because you were in the writing groove not too long ago. I was in the writing groove. I wish I could do both at the same time, but apparently I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's almost like a different part of your brain has to take over. Right? It really is. And it's hard to toggle. Uh, I've tried to like take a day where I toggle uh, back and forth, but I cannot do it. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, dedicating one day to one and another day to the next thing. I, I still can't do it. It's really, um, yeah, it's just really like a seasonal thing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that once I get my fill, once I feel like I've, I've made until I cannot stitch anymore, then I will feel a pull to come back in and sit my butt down and start writing again. Yeah. It's weird. It feels, no, that feels I, right though. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that. Yeah. Okay. I'm not painting. I'm not painting. I don't think I've really painted painted since May. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, doing the ceramics right now is kind of what I'm into. And that's, it's really, it's actually really good to kind of clear everything else out for me right now and not focus right. on writing or painting and, mm-hmm. and to just do that thing. Um, did, can I tell you, tell you what I'm making in ceramics? Yeah. So we have to make a non-traditional trophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can't look anything like a regular trophy. Mm-hmm. And you had to come up with all these concepts and take it to my very kind of stoic um, Japanese um, <laughs> ceramics professor. Mm-hmm. And so I pitched the idea to him that my trophy would be for best s- silent disco dancer. <laughs> I'm like channeling the she recovers business <laughs> into my art. Like I do my recovery into my art. And he was like, can you explain? And I was like, and I knew I had to very succinctly explain that. And I said, it's just where you listen to music on headphones and you dance and nobody else can hear it, but you. And he was like, all right. Um, <laughs> and what is, what would you, how would that look? And I'm like, can I show you? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> so you have to have three elements um, that can be non-traditional elements too. You can't even have a platform for like what you would put a trophy on that little square. You can't have that it has to be an object. So I'm like, it would be a disco ball, half of wow. a disco ball and high heel shoes and headphones. Ooh. And he was like, well, your headphones are going to break. So basically you need to make them smaller to go over the tops of the shoes and good luck. And then I, I'm like, I don't know how he means that. Like, <laughs> so I walk away and I'm like, I'm feeling that's a little passive aggressive. I feel but... like I'm not sure what's happening here, but I'm going to do it. So that is what I will start on tomorrow is making my half of a disco ball. Oh, oh. And it has to be 15 inches tall, Sandra. Oh my gosh. So yeah, no problem, right? It should be super easy for me. Um, <laughs> no wheel. You can't work on the wheel at all, which I thought was going to be this great thing, but I'm like, how do I build a, so he showed us many techniques, but, um, so stay tuned for that, Sandra. That's going to be, I cannot wait to see how this unfolds. Yeah. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Good <laughs> luck. <laughs> okay. So, um, do you have anything you want to promote before we move on? 
um, really quickly, I mentioned it in the last podcast, but I'm going to mention it one more time. If you're in the Austin area, we're having a, a little easy meetup on Friday, October 12th. Um, and we know for sure that it's going to be at the Sands Bar, uh, which is in Austin. Um, you can look them up. Uh, for an address. We'll probably meet there around 830, I'm thinking, and we may have dinner beforehand. Not everything is finalized. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, Sandra underscore unruffled, um, I'll be announcing more details there. That's it. That sounds fun. You girls are going to have a good time. I know. I'm excited. Um, I have one thing coming up on October 20th with um, Natalie Fairbrook and Nikki Hale. And we are going to have a women's circle again in Santa Rosa at Soul Yoga. Um, all of the details for it can be found at Natalie's website at nataliefairbrook.com. You can register and learn more. And we're going to be doing some fun things. It's going to be, um, you know, Natalie will lead us in yoga and meditation. And then I'm going to be doing um, an exercise on the art of the morning ritual, and we'll also focus on gratitude. And then Nikki Hale, who's been on our show, is going to be leading an exercise about the life-death life cycle and um, helping us to do a creative take-home project that involves little tiny pocket altars. So Mm. all of that can be found on the website. It's going to be nice and calm and beautiful, kind of autumnal. Um, coming back to ourselves, getting ready before the big, you know, holiday seasons are season is upon us. So that'll be good. Um, but we should get into introducing our guest for today. Why don't you you tell the listeners about our guest? Okay. Well, today we are excited to share a conversation with Dana Bowman. Dana Bowman is a longtime English teacher and part-time professor in the Department of English at Bethany College, Kansas. Her first book titled Bottled, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery, published by Central Recovery Press was chosen as a 2016 Kansas notable book. Her second book, which is out now, is called How to Be Perfect Like Me. It's a great book. <laughs> it's a great and title. You can, yeah, they're both great books. And you can find uh, both of those on her site, of course, Amazon, wherever you buy your fine books. Um, she is also the creator of a popular blog called momsyblog.com. It's M-O-M-S-I-E blog.com. And she leads workshops on writing and addiction with a special emphasis on being a woman in recovery while parenting young children. Yeah. And she was recently, um, on the today show and she had a spot there that was called, I am a mom in recovery. Um, and it's about a woman sharing her journey through alcoholism and it aired on September 4th. And you can find that on Dana's website. And she was also, I just listened to her on our friend, Megan Peters, who's also been on our show. She Mm -hmm. has a new podcast called never not grateful. And Dana uh, Bowman was on episode four talking about her gratitude practice. And like Sandra said, you can find her on her website and we hope that you enjoy um, listening to all that she has to offer today. Yeah. You guys enjoy Dana. Hey Dana, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks you guys so much for having me. Good morning, Dana. Where in the country are we talking to you? I am in a cute little town in the Midwest, um, just in Lindsborg, Kansas, right smack dab in the middle of 
the nation. Nice. I've never been to Kansas. I have driven through Kansas um, a couple of times on my way to a fish show in the early 90s. (laughs) A fish show. (laughs) Oh, yes. like a fish concert, right? Uh-huh. Okay, I was I was thinking like a fish convention. I like mean, she has weird hobbies. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Wow, this conversation <laughs> could get really interesting. Not what I expected. Took a turn. <laughs> Took a real quick turn right off the bat. <laughs> we have That's we have a, we have a friend from Kansas, don't we, Sandra? Or um, everybody has a friend from Kansas. <laughs> Okay. And they're, they're really nice people too. We are. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Our friend that we interviewed on the show that now I'm totally drawing a blank. You're going to, um, no, that's Kansas city. That's different. Okay. I told you I wasn't awake yet. Never mind. <laughs> Same. Cause I grew up around Kansas city and it's really confusing cause it's Missouri, but we're right on the line. So I just say Kansas city cause it sounds cooler. <laughs> right. <laughs> I grew up in Kansas city, which <laughs> sound a slight. Isn't there, this this is going to get very boring for our listeners, but isn't there a Kansas City, Kansas and a Kansas City, Missouri? Yes, because we like to keep it interesting. KCK is not as cool. Oh boy, I'm going to totally tick people off now. (laughs) Never mind. I'm going to We're we're very controversial, Dana, here on the, you know. (laughs) I'm ruffling feathers. It was, (laughs) you're like, never mind. Let's forget it. Uh, Dana, uh, it was Megan Peters, is that who I was thinking of? Oh, yeah, Megan. Yeah. Of course, Megan. Megan. Oh, Megan. And I I love Megan. And are you guys close? Is it she in your state? She is, and we know each other. And we've actually never met in person, but we have done many collabs, and I was on her podcast, and we have chatted each other with each other numerous times, and she's just the awesomest of awesome so yeah she is we love megan too, we love too. yeah so he, i think you and i dana are in a secret facebook group together although i'm not super um yep. uh active i've been yep. in the group for a very long time but i'm not super active in it but i definitely you know i didn't stalk you or anything but i definitely you know you are you've been on my radar for a long oh time. oh my gosh i'm a lurker there as well and so, yes, but that, that group, um, yeah, that's been a great group for me in terms of maintaining my sanity. So I'm glad that you stalked me. That's totally fine. <laughs> it doesn't sound as dangerous, you know, when, when you're online. It's Life so. sounds a little more interesting than it really is right now. <laughs> and isn't that the case for everyone? Yeah. Well, Dana, the way we usually start this show is we – you know, we like to get the cliff, ver- cliff notes version of how you came to sobriety. And I know that you go into detail about this in your first book um, called Bottled, which is a very good book. If, if no one has ever read it, um, Bottled, A Mom's Early Guide to Early Recovery. But um, so for anyone who hasn't read that book, can you kind of give us the short version of how you came to sobriety? Well, actually, I have the book right here, and I'm just going to read it to you. The whole okay. thing. <laughs> awesome. And now, by Dana Bowman. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, let's see. Really quickly, I, I grew up in a home with a dad that was in recovery. So that kind of added to the mix. I always like to mention that, um, not as, you know, finger pointing, but just saying, here, look, this was kind of in the mix already. 
And I had been lectured by him quite sternly, um, you know, all through my college years and 20s, don't, you know, don't do it. 50% of all children of alcoholics become alcoholics. And of course, I knew that I was smarter than that and just vastly superior to alcohol in every way. So I did drink, um, and you know, I, there's a chapter in bottle that's called, I never danced on tables, which Mm -hmm. was me kind of whining about the fact that my drinking was pretty normal ish. Um, I was very good at controlling it. I never wanted to be out of control. I always, um, I drank alone basically at home a lot, but if I did party, it was very, you know, I would drink before, I would go out <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and then when I went out to parties or whatever, it was just all real contained. So all of this was to say I was quite proud of myself and thought I had this thing, this whole alcoholic gene thing that we hear about um, totally fine. And then I got married and had kids. And part of the issue with that, as much as I don't, I don't want it to sound like the kids just took me off the, you know, off the rails. Um, but I'm such a control freak and I am such a perfectionist and still am. I call myself a a recovering perfectionist, um, that when, you know, you add kids to the mix, they don't do perfection and they don't do control. And so I had some pretty severe postpartum depression with both. And once those babies were born and I was now staying at home and trying to be the quote, perfect, happy mom. And I wasn't feeling that. Um, I started drinking really heavily at night, but again, I just, I just kind of said, you know, it's just at night I'm by myself. I'm watching my Netflix. What's the problem, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just wine. How can white wine, you know, equal alcoholic? That's just, it's way too sophisticated for that. Right. <laughs> so of course I, I ended up probably drinking boxed wine, you know, like, oh yeah, that's where <laughs> we go. I know of which you <laughs> yeah. speak. Oh, I love that stuff with the little the little handle that you could like open your fridge and be like, look, it's like its own dispenser just right plus, there. Plus no one could tell how much you had drank out of exactly. that box. Right. It's in a flip yeah. box. So, mm-hmm. um, and that progressed to, you know, I was probably drinking about a bottle and then a day. And then also I'd gone into drinking vodka and I was hiding it all over the house, but still I didn't have a problem. Right. And, um, and then finally there was this moment and I I talk about it in the book there where I was kind of without my knowledge, I had denied myself so firmly into this place of misery that I remember sitting upstairs and watching my kids playing. They're so in the moment and they're so happy because mommy's just sitting, you know, close by, but mommy is completely hungover and sick and a lump. And I just remember thinking like I was planning my suicide. Like I, I, I somehow I had gotten to this place where I wanted Brian to meet some nice woman mm-hmm. and I was like planning their <laughs> eventual nuptials because I would be gone. And then finally this tiny little voice was like, you are batshit crazy and this is nuts. And, and I had this horrific moment where I realized I actually really could not stop. I had tried. I'd done all the little things where you like say you're not going to drink past five or earlier than five. And, Mm -hmm. oh, I did all that. And I just horribly realized that, oh, my God, I'm a flipping alcoholic. I can't quit. And I've tried to quit. And now I also realized that if I kept drinking, what would happen? And and what would probably happen would be my death. Mm -hmm. And... Yet, and this is so sad, 
in that moment, I still said, well, fine, I'm an alcoholic and I will manage that too, as I have managed everything else in my life. Cause I just couldn't, I couldn't grasp the idea of not drinking anymore. Mm-hmm. It just was so important to me. And so I kept on for probably another three months until I finally surrendered and, and adamantly stated to my husband the night that I fell apart on him and finally said it out loud, I have a problem, but I will not go to meetings because I, I grew up with that and I was mm-hmm. fearing it. And then, of course, the very next day I went to a meeting and <laughs> and that was that. And and it it's really weird because when people talk about um, – those first day of sobriety, for me, it was like I was in autopilot. I think my higher power just kind of picked me up and put keys in my hand and sort of just put me in the car and mm-hmm. made stuff on autopilot. And then I slept. I either went to meetings or I slept. And my husband was really good with that and let me do that for a while until I kind of got myself, I guess, recalibrated. And then the real work began. So When was that's this, Dana? All of this was back in 2011. 2011, okay. Yeah, and then I was sober for three years and did well. I think my early recovery days were a lot of crying and a lot of mess and turmoil. But for the most part, I really, I did what my friend said, stay sober and go to meetings and don't drink in between. That was my big mantra and just do it for the next 20 minutes. And there was a lot of crying and a lot of bad momming where I was doing frozen pizza and McDonald's and movies and my kids loved it. I bet. <laughs> I bet. Mm-hmm. They were pretty little, but I still think they were like, this is what's going on, but this is awesome. You know, like, mm-hmm. and um, I just kind of gave myself permission to be a crappy mom. So quote unquote, right. not really, but you know, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and did that. Yeah, did the did the deed. Well, when you when you are trying to be the perfect mom, which is what you write about quite a bit, like that's uh, your story completely resonates with me, Dana. Completely resonates with me. Um, you know, kind of that and then you just start going inward and like you said on the couch and then the box yeah. wine and then I mean and then you're thinking so much in your head like yeah, you can erase yourself out of the picture. Um, it's a really dark, scary place and yes. and I think that we present or I imagine I'm just going to speak for myself, but that I presented like I just had my shit together. Oh yeah. So and your story, awesome. your story of perfectionism, like, uh, yes, I am a recovering perfectionist as well. Oh, I yeah. definitely identify with you. And that's exhausting. Like for uh-huh. me that putting on that, plus I was a teacher and I still am, but I don't, I don't, I adjunct now, so I don't do it as much, but putting on that happy face and those, and that lipstick and those heels. And then I'd go tripping into work and put myself on because as a teacher, you really do have to be kind of on. And, and then I'd come home and just collapse and be like, I'm so exhausted. I deserve this, you know? And, and part of it too, is the shame. Like for me, even when, when I had my kids and I started drinking so heavily, I talk about denial as being this crafty mofo that will tell (laughs) you one thing, but deep down the denial is not strong enough to to really shut up and so right you can bat you can shut the curtain for you can only shut it for so long and not look at it and i think denial has like this ugly stepsister and the the ugly stepsister is shame so they go together right 
you bounced back and forth between you idiot. How could you do this? You're a mom for Pete's sake. Cause that was my big issue. Like I had been large and in charge my whole life, you know, straight A's through everything. And you know, just super mom, super, or no, no, not super mom, but super teacher, super wife, super all of it. But when you have kids, that's when you're finally really supposed to be on your game, right? Because you're now in charge of these little creatures and, and, and now you really are, this is when the rubber hits the road and you really should be on your game. And I wasn't. And the mm -hmm. shame of that was like, holy crap, like you did your life perfectly and now you're in charge of two little boys and you are screwing this up so bad. And you are, you know, that is just reprehensible. And I couldn't get past that shame. It was awful. Mm -hmm. well, I, yeah. So you had postpartum, you said, yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I, and I do have to wonder, sometimes I, and I, I don't really need to, like, try to really hash this out, but I do wonder sometimes, was the postpartum there because of my alcoholic drinking that had kind of started picking up before? You know, was it all just a tangled mess? Because I do think postpartum depression and self-medicating go really hand in hand anyhow. Sure. And right. I, it's, I and it's so hard to untangle all, all of that, isn't it? Yeah. And try to untangle it because, of course, you're a mom and you're in charge and you fix things, right? So here I am trying to untangle it, but really... I don't really care now, <laughs> but, no, but, I, no. but I get how we self-medicate. I wasn't drinking during my pregnancy and while I was breastfeeding, but I was thinking about it like all the flipping time. And I finally, towards the end of breastfeeding, I kind of figured out the whole pump and dump. And then that was a total shit show of like right. scheduling and hours and time and yeah. what a what a disaster. Cause then you're so proud of yourself for pumping and dumping. Right. But it's just a constant for me. It was a constant mental, <laughs> just like doing math all the time. I just couldn't. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> and you justify it too, right? Like, Oh, this is normal activity. This is surely other, other moms do this. Right. Right. And I had even been told by a friend, you know, you can pump and dump if you're going, you know, she's a total normie. And I think she meant like, if you're going out to a party and you're going to have a glass of wine, not every night, I was like, <laughs> thank God, you know, I looked at it as this life preserver. And mm -hmm. I talk about this in bottled where my doctor even told me when I first had Charlie, and I was a nervous wreck, anyhow, and we we're having a really hard time nursing. And it was just awful. Um, he was the one that said, Dana, you know, you can have beer. It lets it, it's something about lets your milk come in or something. Yeah. I, I someone told me that too. He loved my doctor then. I was yeah. like, oh, mm -hmm. bless you. And I didn't even like beer, but I was ready mm -hmm. for it. So yeah. Same, same. It just opened, it just, yeah, it just gave some ex, uh, acceptance around it. It's like, oh yeah. So totally justified in what I'm doing. I love <clears throat> in your first book, how you give these great lists at the end of each chapter. And, um, like there was one called 10 physical symptoms of early alcohol abuse. I just thought that was so helpful because, um, a lot of your lists are very funny. Most of them have a lot of humor injected in them, but, um, that list in particular, you know, a lot of those things, it was like, those were things that no one told me. Like I had no idea about any of that. It's like I had an eye twitch for, I don't know, a year and a half at the end of my drinking. And, you know, and I'm, 
pretty sure that was a that was a physical symptom of alcohol yep. abuse. Yep. Um, we but start to fall apart. Our bodies start to like psoriasis. That was another thing I never even mentioned. But I started to have skin issues. And it's so funny how that stuff doesn't, you don't think about it then, but then you look back and you're like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I was I talking about that list. That's so funny. You should mention it because I remember telling my editor, you know, my lists are always funny, but this one isn't. And she's like, that's good. Let's yeah. Because it's good to have the serious in there too. And you need to really make sure they understand the reality of this. So yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Our friend Natalie that's been on the show um, calls it like, you know, CSI, uh, sober CSI. So it's almost like you're reconstructing when you're talking about your health issues. Like I look back and you're reconstructing like, oh, that's why the sheets were always stained because I was sweating my ass off. Or that's why my left arm was numb or (laughs) yeah, you reconstruct it afterwards because I don't you can't know it. When I was in it, I just kept going to the doctor. Oh, I don't yeah, know what's exactly. wrong with me. I don't right. know. Yeah, but of course, we never mentioned that we were, oh, I did that too. Yeah. And counselors. I went to a counselor for a year and never told him that I was drinking like half a bottle of wine each night. Yeah. But I was miserable, right? And so I kept talking about how miserable I was. And we couldn't figure it out. We couldn't fix it. And so then finally, when I told him, he kind of looked at me like, you dumbass. Like, why, yeah. why did Tell me this at the beginning because, you know, you're putting a depressant in your body. It's no wonder you're flipping depressed, Dana. I heard, I heard a great quote in a meeting recently and, and someone said, because I didn't tell my therapist for seven years, Dana, so I just want you to know. <laughs> so, yeah, and it said, and it's, it's so that we not talk to them about these things. Right? right? I'm just paying them um, anyhow, hey. but I eventually <laughs> did and things got better. Surprise. Yeah. But someone said like, it's like remodeling. So not telling your therapist that you have, that how much you drink is like remodeling your kitchen while your house is on fire. Exactly. And that just made mm-hmm. so yeah. much sense to me. And I was like, and that's exactly. So like, that's the thing. I think moms are, again, are such fixers. I mean, we're the, we're the, well, this isn't me, but <laughs> we're the type of person that if the kid falls down, we are there with the band-aids and the whatever you have in your purse to save the day. I am not one of those moms, just as a preface. I've never had a band-aid in my damn purse. Like I'm me always neither. I did. neither. I, did. I, I would even <laughs> I would even go out without diapers. I mean I was that kind of mom. <laughs> and I've always kind of felt bad because I have a friend that like um like Elisa, do you have a band-aid? Like anyhow, this is total tangent. But mm-hmm. but we're supposed to be the band-aid moms, right? And yet we're the ones that's going to the therapist for seven years mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't want to fix the real issue because yeah well the, it's I think just, it's the ask so you just made me think oh talk about a tangent here but I was on a plane to Mexico once with my little boy when he was you know less than one years old and I forgot to pack diapers and so what, my solution because this woman doesn't want to ask for any help about yeah. anything was that we yeah. like wrapped him up in a t-shirt like and hoped that he wouldn't make a mess just hope the best yeah. I wouldn't even so we're all going to Cancun Club Med on this plane there's probably 9,000 diapers on that plane. Yeah. I could have asked mm-hmm. anybody around me, but my brain just no. could not ask for help because yeah. I forgot it. Perfect yeah. Tammy forgot it, right? So it's just My funny. Mom gets the diapers. Funny. And that's that was the preface of like everything I was thinking back then. What kind of mom dot, dot, dot. What kind of right. mom mm. 
takes your kids to the zoo and then gets mad at them. Like I would get so frustrated with my kids when they were little because I'd want to do, and I, I talk about this in the book, the pendulum of the nutball pendulum of despair. This is, mm-hmm. this was my thing. I'd go back and forth between, oh my gosh, I'm a shitty mom. So therefore we have to fix this today. And, and the way that we're going to fix this is I am going to make my kids so flipping happy. Their little heads are going to explode. So let's do the zoo and let's be happy, happy, happy. And then within five minutes, somebody be crying. And then I would just go all the way over to the other side and just be like, well, that's it. You know, this is, this is shit. Yeah. (laughs) My whole life is meaningless and they're crying and I hate children and animals and the zoo and all of it. Mm -hmm. So we just go back and forth. And then in my head, along with that was the wonderful rhythm of what kind of mom, blah, blah, blah. So it was just miserable. So So, miserable. So much internal dialogue, right? It's so much work. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so- and then in meetings, yeah. I would always hear stay in the middle, stay in the middle. And I was like, but yeah. it's so boring in the middle. It's just, ah, <laughs> uh, I would so rather not in the middle. Crazy. Yeah, I get it. Drama. <laughs> we, we thrive on that kind of stuff. And I think it's a very common trait for alcoholics, especially moms, because there is a bit of monotony with this life. Okay. And there is a bit, I still feel it. Like even this morning, I'm looking at my house going, Oh God. Like, you know, I have to do the same five things every day, make the beds, do the dishes, start a load of laundry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's times when you really want to, you know, it's just annoying. And so that monotony, you know, back in my old days where I could drink, I think I had figured that that was the way to inject the big fun. And I, I I talk about this in imperfect a lot. I capitalized B and big and effing fun. And I wanted this big fun every day in some mm-hmm. way. And it wasn't going to happen with my husband because he wasn't Tom Cruise. And it wasn't going to happen with my kids because they weren't like a perfect and adorable all the time. So, well, then I was just going to have to do it myself. And wine worked for a long time to add that big fun until it stopped. It actually did at work. I tell myself it did. When I was parenting and drinking, it never really worked because I knew deep down I wasn't drinking just to drink, like just to have a glass of wine with my husband and then be cozy on the couch and all that. I was drinking with motives. And Mm -hmm. so there was never big fun attached to motives. It's like it's like New Year's Eve, right? When I have firmly stated now that I do hate New Year's Eve because we put all this pressure on it to be like the best, you know, whatever you go out and night with your tiny dress and your high heels and it's actually really miserable and your feet hurt I didn't Mm -hmm. even like it in my 20s really but we put all this layers of expectations on it it's never as fun as like just staying home and playing poker with your friends right so that's kind of how I looked at parenting and marriage and all that it had all these layers of expectations attached and the only way I could amp it up was to add wine to it or so I thought and I did, when I first got sober, I really did think I was just going to be a boring slob forever after that. It was hard to get past that, but, but look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, fa- that's a phase of early sobriety. I, I remember just wearing the crinkled up clothes on the ground and not yeah. doing my hair and, you know, dragging my ass to a meeting and just sitting there. Like, I always say I was like Ali Sheedy in the breakfast club and just like <laughs> kept my hair in front of my face and just scribbled in my notebook. And I needed yeah. to be her for a while. 
I wore a baseball cap because I never washed my hair, mm-hmm. and I wore these faded Victoria's Secret baggy bottoms that fell down, and <laughs> yeah. that's okay. And I felt really sorry for myself, and that's yeah. okay. And I was also convinced that my life was going to suck, and that's okay for a while. But but paired along with that, there were these tiny little moments of like real feelings that finally started blossoming inside me and I kind of look at it as like these little tiny shoots of like flowers in spring were coming through and they were really good Mm. and and I did have a really smart person tell me once write this stuff down because you're going to want to look back and remember it and and know that there is true joy here um along with all the other crap that you have to sludge through because sometimes there's a lot of sludging in early recovery and it's, it's a hard sell, right? You know, you tell people give up the one thing you want the most and your life will be so much better. And they're like, it's crap right now. This is worse. I'm fighting all the time. And I can remember screaming at my husband saying, how am I a better mom sober? Because I, and you know, it almost makes me want to cry because I felt like, I did. I got mad and I, I was crappy at first and an emotional wreck. And there were times when our days were rough and I I did, I felt so bad about it. And I asked Brian, I'm like, how is this better? You know, if I could just numb out right now, I would leave my kids alone and I'd go over to the corner and he looked at me and he goes, but Dana, you wouldn't be here and we want you here. Yeah. 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 I have gotten that advice as well. Like, um, especially if you're a person that you know, suffers from depression, or even if you are, you just have low, you know, it may not be quote unquote clinical depression, but you just have times in the Valley, which everybody does is to write down those times where you're just freaking happy. And, and so that you can look back on that and go, Oh, that day on two, it was a Tuesday. Um, and it was, you know, in the afternoon and I was drinking, uh, uh, mistake coffee that I shouldn't have been drinking, but I was just really happy. <laughs> you know, and it, I think it has a lot to do with gratitude. And that was something actually that I just talked about with Megan Peters on her podcast. And it was so good to remember those daily little moments of gratitude and trying to just write them down no matter what, even if they're just stupid. Like I like my, you know, I like my cat and he's soft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just I like basic. Him. Yeah. Yes. And I try to write those things down because you're right. My, my stuff in recovery now, and especially back then in early recovery was very, very low affect, low feelings, low everything. And I hated it. And I, I didn't want to talk about my cat being soft. I wanted my cat to be like the best cat that ever was a cat, you know, and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know, and it, he wasn't, he was just soft and it really got to me. Um, but it took time for me to kind of reprogram that. And now, you know, it's, it's not always like this, but for the most part, I'm pretty good with the, the mellow and the low, like not the huge feelings all the time and things like that. I hope that makes sense. No, it does make sense because I have found too, that the other, you know, the big feelings like happiness, joy, those can be just as uncomfortable as pain and sadness, you know, that, that just look, I mean, other, I remember a couple of times that I was just staring at a, I don't know, a sunset or something and, and just feeling this like extreme rush of, of 
you know, beauty coursing through me. And then I just would get really uncomfortable. Like, oh my God, this is, this is what's happening here. This is happiness. This is joy. I'm feeling it. Yeah. I had the exact same. And I think I even write about this. That's so weird because Brian and I were talking, that's my husband, by the way, I was talking with him about sunsets and how they make me cry. And he's, Brian's like this total engineer, like, he's just, I don't know how we got married, but we did. Anyway, (laughs) he just kind of blinked at me like, what? Like, that's pretty, you know, it's a sunset. Who cares? And I'm like, but they're sad. Like, (laughs) explain how emotional, you know, they make me and all this. And I sometimes don't like them because it's a little much. And, and he's like, what the heck is wrong with you lady? (laughs) Yeah. Those are the joys of marriage right there. But I get that. And I actually, for me, when my relapse occurred, it was centered around happy stuff. And that was hard. I I have a real issue still with happy things. And those are the things that make me want to drink more so than really hard, you know, difficult situations with somebody getting sick or being sad. I would be very, very happy. And happy was when I would get triggered. Yeah, let's talk. So let's, let's turn to that. Hey, Unruffled listeners, just popping in mid show to remind you about our Patreon fundraising campaign. To date, we have produced over a year's worth of content and have over a quarter million downloads. We can hardly believe it. If you like what you've been hearing, You can be a patron of this show for as much as you'd like, even if it's just a dollar an episode. To donate, please go to www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. Thank you for your continued support of the show. Now back to it. So in your book, How to Be Perfect Like Me, you know, one of the central themes is is, um, that you experienced a relapse. And um you in the pages like that you wrote uh, leading up to the relapse, you use this drowning metaphor. I thought that was just so beautiful. Um, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Can you des- yes. just describe that to our listeners? Yeah, that that's the chapter on depression. And one of the issues that I was having at the time prior to the relapse was, well, there was a lot of things in place. I could try to explain to you why the relapse happened, but I'm not going to go there right now because that'll take forever. Plus the book, just read the book. Anyhow, (laughs) um, but uh, depression and anxiety were still um, a part of my life, even after getting sober. And I think something happened along the way there in my recovery where I was like, what? Like, no, I should be totally over being depressed and anxiety should be totally gone. I did the deed. I did what you wanted. You know, I'm talking to my, my higher power or something Mm -hmm. still coming back. And you know, there's lots of reasons I've, I have accepted depression as kind of a part of my existence in terms of like being hormonal and being a woman and lots of other things. I mean, it's 2018. There's enough to be depressed about as it is. Exactly. Anyhow. Um, but what, what I wrote about in that chapter was how I started to just sort of feel like I was sitting in my living room and I was trying to explain what I was feeling like in terms of the depression. And I felt like I was just sitting in my living room and it just started to slowly fill with water. And then I'm sitting there (laughs) just kind of letting it fill with water and not really trying to escape 
and watching it happen and then just getting up and like walking into the kitchen to get a drink of water or to get, well, that doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean? Just to even traverse my day, it felt like I was just walking through water and, and slowly drowning, um, but also mm. not really doing anything about it at the same time. And it was a slow, slow process um, and pretty scary when I look back on it. But when it was happening again, it was one of those moments in my recovery as well as just life where I couldn't really tell you why it was happening or what to do about it. And the best thing that I could offer at the time, which I didn't do very well, thus the relapse, is I would just kind of sit and I, I have this image of me sitting on the couch while stuff is like floating past me. And I just didn't want to move because I was mm -hmm. afraid to get into the water and deal with it as well as escape was too hard. Um, mm. And it was, it was a really painful time. It was a really painful time. Would you do things differently now since you experienced that and then you had a relapse? You know, and I hate to say that because I don't want people to hear this and go, oh, okay, well, I should relapse too. Um, no. <laughs> I don't recommend relapse because it does really suck <laughs> when you come yeah. back and you have to like write the train and go, okay, you know, like that was really super hard. I, I was, I was pretty blessed. I have to say, I think my higher power just feels really, really sorry for me because he's been pretty good to me. I only was like out there quote experimenting with drinking again for seven days. And then he was able to like slap me upside the head and go, look, idiot, get back to the, you know, get back to the plan. Um, but coming back from it was super hard. There was no pink cloud. There was no like, um, the stuff that you experience in early recovery with your feelings and joy that is unmatched. I didn't really have that the second time around. I just had to slog through. However, that being said, I wouldn't change it because you know what it did? It took, it took me to my knees and it really showed me like, I failed. Like I, I, when I first got sober, everyone was like, yay, Dana, super sobriety girl, you know, so great. High five. Good for you. And then I relapsed and they're like crickets. <laughs> mm. And my <laughs> husband got mad and I, I just didn't get that ovation, you know, yeah. and I also, mm -hmm. got, there's a really, in my opinion, one of my favorite chapters in perfect is when I go back to my, um, recovery group and I tell them, and I, I don't want to divulge it because I don't want people to get freaked out about meetings, but I will tell you the response that I got was wonderful and heartwarming and awesome, except for this one dude. <laughs> Yeah, that was good. There's and always the one dude, right? There's like, always the guy. Always, yeah. From going to meetings, but Jim, I'll never forget him. He did what he needed to do for me. And it was really hard. Like I got kind of humbled by the whole experience and it was good for me in the sense that, um, I, I look at it as like recovery part 2.0 for me, because mm. I think those first three years, I really still deep down thought I was smarter than recovery. And I didn't mean, I don't say that meaning I was going to go back to drinking. I didn't really ever think I'd go back to drinking until right around that October of that year where I started relapse, the, the relapse thinking. Um, but I really did feel like kind of internally that, you know what, I got this, like I'm done. I've clicked, I've checked all the boxes and I am so good at this. And I wrote a book for Pete's sake, like, boom, I have this mm -hmm. and I, I'm not smarter than recovery. It's always going to be, um, a tricky little creature. You know, they call it cunning, baffling, powerful. And you have to understand 
that if you're not um, working always on it, then it will be smarter than you. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's humbling, and I needed that. I needed that. Well, we're at this time of the year, like we're in October or about to become in October, yeah. and it's like the holidays are coming. And your story, <laughs> the reason that it resonated with me, too, is that Christmas can be just this kind of, oh, this whole cacophony of everything coming at you at once right like all the sounds and the noises and the and that just it's it's gonna be really stressful and and it all triggers my memories of sitting and drinking by the fire which I never had a flipping fire like I (laughs) Mm -hmm. in my head I have this image of Dana drinking mold wine by a fire I'm like good god I had a fireplace in the first place why but you go there you know and it's this whole Christmas, I call the trifecta because it starts with Halloween, which was always for me just a drunk thing. Yeah. And it gave you permission to dress stupidly and then drink a lot. So anyhow, then you go on to Thanksgiving, which involves my family, which also meant drinking later. a lot. Yeah. Well, my family didn't drink, but they stressed me out so much. No, that's what I mean. My family doesn't drink either, but they made me want to drink. Yes. Yes. They made me want to drink. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. Anyhow, And then Christmas would come, and I can remember Christmas where we would be getting into the scotch, you know, at like 11. And one year, Brian bought me all this wine, and I thought he was like the best husband in the history of husbands because he bought me like multiple bottles of wine. And it just just layered everything with this extra coating of you're not going to have to feel too many emotions here because this is an emotional time, and it's happy. But you don't have to worry about that because now you can just drink. What you know? What if you're not happy enough during Christmas? What if your kids aren't happy enough? Yeah. You know. Well, right. There's so many expectations around oh, Christmas. Yeah. So watch, many. Watch the Hallmark Christmas Channel for like one hour and then go. My God, why am I not? You know, why are there not four Christmas trees in my house and a cupcake factory? And like, what is yep. with me? And and so we are just we hype it up so much. And of course, too, if you have kids. Yeah. To be awesome. And if my Christmas story from my past wasn't the best, which it wasn't sometimes, it was, we had some rough Christmases. We had some emotional, not so happy memories. And then, of course, you want to fix all that. And, you know, we're going to be different. This family is doing Christmas differently. (laughs) Where's my Christmas box or whatever dumb thing off the Pinterest? Yeah, sorry. And I, I wanted so much for them to be experiencing Christmas, like to the point where they were so grateful that they never wanted any toys and then they would be brats about it. And then I'd bounce back and forth and be like, well, let's just buy them a pony and get it over with. <laughs> I really do. It's hard. It's a, it's a hard holiday to traverse. And um, I find it a little funny because the whole point of Christmas is not about any of this stuff, but, but right. we moms layer it. We layer it. It's funny how, yeah, how we complicate it. And, um, but it's interesting to me because for me, every Christmas, so I had a five day bender after, um, Christmas, um, the year before, I, before See? I stopped drinking and it was, I know it wasn't my bottom, but it was the, one of the lowest points of my drinking. And, and then, you know, a month or so later I quit, but what, so Knowing that you relapsed for seven days over the Christmas holidays, I was like, yep, that's that's me. Yeah. But you talk about like how humbling that was, and that's what you just shared. But you also talked about how you couldn't stay in the shame. Can you maybe share how you pushed yourself out of that? Not giving away too much because we want people to read the book. But like 
that's that takes some I mean you've been yeah, in the program, you go seven days, it's a dark time, it's the holidays, and then you're like, you know, so it must have been around New Year's Day that you that you went back yeah, or Oh, it was New Year's Day? I have to prove it. New Year's Day was my sobriety day, which I always kind of joke because at at the meetings that I attend, they're like, that's amateur business. Like, (laughs) that's like being sober on the day after St. Patty's Day. What's wrong with you? But I'm like, I did it so I could remember the date. Like, I still can't remember my first sobriety day. Everyone's always asked me, and I'm like, "Uh, it's 2011, and I think it was warm. Like, I don't know. And, And so anyhow, I... I do remember, and I still, I, I I really think shame for me, and maybe for other moms, is really one of our worst things, because it's so packed with all these other emotions, and for me, it was just based on fear. Every time I would feel shame, it was just linked to a fear that I wasn't loved, I wasn't good enough, and I wasn't... Um, I, I don't know how to explain this very well, but there's this part of me that just feels like sometimes I'm invisible and I'm not being seen. Mm-hmm. It's the- like rejection, right? It's oh, a yeah. huge fear of rejection. I yeah. want people to see me for who I really am and to really value me. And shame is so attached to that. And um, so when this relapse occurred and then I had to come back, there is this picture um, at at our church every year. We have this big. We live in this little Swedish town, and so we have this big Swedish pancake feed every New Year's Day. And for years prior, well, like three years, I had loved it because I was sober, and I'm like, look at me, sober Dana, go on to the pancake Eat feed. Pancakes, <laughs> not sweaty. Life is so good. And then you know, because you feel like as a as a person in recovery, you kind of love those holidays because you're like, look at me, St. Patty's Day, and I'm not drinking the green beer, and I rock. So I have this picture of me on that day after I relapsed where they took it at the church, like there's somebody walking around taking pics, and I'm like staring down at my plate, and you can just see it on my face, like Mm. this horrible, like, (coughs) sorry, I'm like choking, Um, this horrible realization of what I had done, and it is just etched all over my face. Mm. And I don't know how that I had the brains or the, I think it was just, again, when you finally decide to do right by yourself, by your soul, by your body, and it takes a huge sacrifice, I think the universe responds. And so the universe or my higher power, whichever you want to say, said, you know, we're going to work on this shame this, this time. Mm. Because you didn't really work on that last time. And so what, what I came up with, and I'm still working on it because even writing perfect, there are still times when even just in the process of writing it, I still felt so much shame and it, it dredged up a lot of stuff for me. Um, it's not something that I think we ever like totally get to graduate out of and say, I will never feel shame again. It, it's an emotion, you know, like we feel emotions. They're not bad. Um, but for me, the realization was you can't stay in it. Like you, you have to, it's not treading water. You can't stick with that shame. You have to get out of the water and, and not let it stick around, you know? And the only thing that I could do to work on that was just really stare it down. And I know this sounds kind of woo woo, but there would be times where I would sit in and just visualize the shame sitting with me. And I'd look at it and say, I don't, I'm not afraid of you anymore. Like, I'm not going to be scared yeah. of you anymore. 
and that was the start. It's it's not perfect. I still have moments. I mean, you can you can talk to anyone that's in my life that loves me. They've seen me where I'm like, ugh, yuck, you know, because it is it's just an yucky feeling. But it is definitely better. It's yeah. Definitely better. It's a yeah. It's. I mean, that's the one thing that makes me get thirsty. You know, as if I'm like staying in some shameful moment. That's the. That's the. That's the one thing. You know, and it helps to yeah. to to re- talk about it. You know, in meetings or with somebody that you trust. Um, get just get letting it go. Body, and that was the part where. I looked at it as an entity in itself outside of me. And I kind of looked at it as something that was sort of set up in this world to mess with me and like be kind of a punk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and also though, you know, when I did that little exercise and I looked at this creature and said, I'm not afraid of you. It was also like, and I remember a therapist telling me this and every therapist has told every person this in the history of therapy, they've said, that shame served some purpose for you, okay? So feeling it wasn't necessarily bad. It was just what you had to do at the time. And so I always had to kind of work through it and say, okay, what's, what did this serve? What was it for? And the only thing I could kept coming back to was that shame was there to show me, kind of ring a huge bell and say, this is not how it should be. And but then you can go with that and say, well, then I so suck because what I should be is blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's just telling you there's a disparity between what you're feeling right now and what your life will be if you continue doing the next right thing. So I don't know. Yeah. It, that's... it sounds very thinky and I'm honestly not that thinky. I do tend to write a lot though. And so a lot of this gets worked out in my writing um, but yeah. Yeah. That's what I wanted to ask you about because I found when, when, when I stopped drinking, I know for Sandra, and this is what we usually talk about on this podcast is like, once you remove alcohol, you have this big, um, hole to fill basically. And, you know, did you fill that with your writing? Was that a way for you? Was that cathartic to kind of dump all yeah. of your feelings and things onto the page? Yeah. And I didn't even realize I did it. Um, it's funny because when you go into recovery, you sort of have to re get, get re get to know yourself. Yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. a writer. <laughs> We're going to quote you on that. Um, you have to figure who you are and what you like. Like I didn't even know what I liked, mm-hmm. but when I was drinking, I loved like, for example, I love scary movies, the scarier and the bloodier, the better. And now if you knew me, you would know, I don't do that shit anymore. I hate, I hate scary movies. Um, you know what? Can I, can I interject for a second? Same. I used to love scary movies. You know, when it turned for me, when I had kids, I couldn't watch them anymore. Because then you're like always thinking, what if we were there with the zombies? zombies? You know, what's fucking scary? Losing my kids. So that's the scariest thing. It's reality for some people. So yeah, I know. But anyway, go ahead. Movie. But yeah, I get that. And I think I actually watched those scary movies as part of my quote, big fun thing. Cause I, back when I was drinking, it was like amped it up and like made myself more freaked out than I already was. Anyhow. So, um, I had to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. I started knitting. Um, I started doing yoga. I started all these things. I don't really do yoga anymore, but I do still occasionally knit. And then I started writing and I just, I liked these kind of things. Like I like walking my dog. I like running. I like these sort of weird meditative things um, that, 
And I know of a lot of people in recovery that like all the kind of the same stuff. I've talked to other women. They like running. They like when they get to recovery. They like walking. They like that that sort of rhythmic, I know this sounds weird, but this sort of rhythmic, pensive activity where you're sort of working it through. Does that make sense? No, I, I'm right there <laughs> yeah. with so, you. I do it all every so day. I loved, yeah, I love being able to have that. And yet... Um, my writing had been something I wanted to do since I was a little girl and I never had any success with it at all. And part of it was because of fear. I was just terrified to ever send anything out there because I thought, what if they reject me and I won't be able to handle it? Well, once I got sober for some reason, I don't know, I felt braver and I just started sending stuff out. And that was when it kind of took off and it cracked me up and still does because this is when my life was at the most busy. Like I had just had, I had newborns. I had kids who were 18 months apart. I was so busy. I was still working. I, and then of course, at the same time, I'm, I'm like trying to write. And I thought maybe that's it. Maybe I had just never really taken my life seriously up until now. And now I really value my time and I value what this life is all about. And I can, I can rock this stuff out even without the time. And I would find myself staying up until like one in the morning writing stuff because even though I was exhausted and sleep deprived, it just felt like I needed, it, it helped me to, yeah, to get it on the page. It's like a depository. Yeah. Like I, I feel I've been sharing this with some of the women that I work with in recovery and I was like, just get it out. You know, it's taking up so much space in your brain, even if you don't want to write a book, but, but to deposit that into a document or to deposit, for me, I've been writing my childhood memories in a spreadsheet to remove them from my brain yeah. and let them take up space on a spreadsheet, which I am not a spreadsheet person, even though I am a Virgo, but it is that I put in there and it seems to be helping uh, me. It seems to be kind of, and I hope it's helping if the girls are taking this, the women are taking the suggestions. It's like, it doesn't have to live there forever in your brain because it takes up a lot of space and it takes up a lot of energy to just yep. keep mulling it over. And mulling. it's like when uh, Sandra and I talk about this often, it's, it's like moderation. When I used to try to moderate, it reminds me of that same thing. It's like, it's, it's a lot of work and energy up there. Yeah. It's a lot of mental bleh, and, and yeah. really it's sort of like me with my lists that I make about what I want to accomplish that day. I'm not going to get half of it done. But there's something really nice about putting it down on a piece of paper. And then it's sort of like it doesn't have that much power anymore. If it's in my head, it's yeah. attached to all these emotions that are like, why aren't you getting this done? And blah, blah, blah. But if I write it down on my little notebook, it doesn't have the power anymore. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although uh, you may kind of twinge when you said spreadsheet. I'm like, oh, no, I know. Ah. I don't really know how to make them as the funny thing. So it's almost very hilarious that I have one. So just know that. <laughs> I'm kind of impressed, though. So. <laughs> well, 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 back to your, you don't have to go through your entire writing process. But is that what you what you do now? Are you still do you carve out time every day to write? Or do you go in fits and starts? Or how do you what's your writing process a little bit about that? I had to get a lot more serious about once I got an offer to write a book, I had to be like, Oh, like I can't do this all willy nilly. Now up until then it had been kind of willy nilly and I had found like places to send articles out to. Um, and then also just was writing in a journal on my own. And one of my biggest issues with my journaling was that I always felt like 
well, I just write it in a notebook and then I set it on a shelf and it's not real unless someone else reads it. And I've really gotten to the point where I'm like, that's crap. Like you just write sometimes to like, um, I'm a big fan of Jeff Goins and he's a podcaster about writing. And, and he says like probably 40% of what he writes down is no, is not for anyone. It's just for his own brain to untangle the tangled ribbons, you know, mm-hmm. in the ribbon door. And so, um, but now I would have to say, I do have kind of a process, especially now that the kids are back in school. Thank you, God. <laughs> I just have, I mean, I, my morning time is pretty much dedicated to writing and writing projects. And then my afternoons are dedicated to, to correspondence and emails and editing if needed. But I say that, like, it sounds like really good, but <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a lot of times where I'm still like, writing until one because I got an idea and I wanted to go with it or I'm late on a deadline. I'm horrible about deadlines now. I used to be so good at them. And now I'm like, I think I've gotten all cocky now that I have the second book out. I'm like, Dana, you need to stop that. Cause they're <laughs> you're not going to be asked to write books anymore. If you keep like getting all, you know, laissez faire about it. Um, but I do like to write when the passion quote hits me. And a lot of that is centered around um, feeding my soul with creative stuff. So, like, I like to make sure I'm reading stuff that really resonates. And I love to watch movies that make me feel really – I even have, like, a Facebook group for women in recovery that is centered around TV and movies that we love that kind of, like, make our heart – Sing, you know, I love that. Yeah, not all of it. I mean, some of it is like, did you watch The Walking Dead the other day? And I'm like, no, no, no. But, but for the most part, I think that we are creative people, and you have to fill yourself with creative stuff to really want to respond, you know. And so it is kind of tied into that. If I if I listen to a podcast that really rocks my world, my my writing might kind of up that day. But I will say I've gotten a lot better about writing even when I don't feel like it. And I have to do it every day. Or, and if I don't, even when it sucks, if it's sucky writing, I still eke it out and, and do it on a daily basis. That's a lot of discipline that doesn't sound like pressure, Dana. Like just the way you <laughs> described it. You know what I mean? That is discipline because you're staying, yeah, you're staying the course without the pressure of it. Like I'm going to feel yeah. if I want to write till one, if I get a great idea. And if not, I'm not going to. Like you're listening to yourself. Yeah. And I try, even though it sounds like you said discipline and I have to laugh because I'm so undisciplined sometimes. Um, like I just got back from this book tour and I really, that was just awful. Like I just ate and I never (laughs) wrote and I was a total schwab. Like everywhere I went, I'm like, where are the cupcakes in this town? You know, like I just didn't care about anything. And that's when the silly today show came out. The today show spot was linked to that. And I should have been, you know, tweeting and all that, but I didn't really, I didn't really care. I just sort of let myself go and, and be off the hook for a bit. And, and that's okay too. I don't think, I don't think we always, um, understand that sometimes, you know, creativity does need discipline, but there are breaks that we need to take from it as well. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I'm no. Well, so let me bring it back. I think, I think what I'm getting from what you're saying, cause I'm taking notes, um, is that, <laughs> is that, you know, for my list for later for the spreadsheet, God. but, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and they're, and they're crazy looking too. So nobody could even decipher these notes on paper, but you, you saying that you're a recovering perfectionist. I say that in my bio too. And I think what you're saying here is just that you're in recovery from that too. 
And it sounds like you're doing a pretty bang up job because you're giving yourself, you're letting yourself off the hook. It's good. I let myself off the hook a lot. And I, I really like, even yesterday I was feeling, um, overwhelmed. I'd had an interview in the morning where she asked some questions that were really painful and Mm. she didn't mean to, she was great. And uh, the lady that interviewed me was awesome, but she asked some stuff about my dad and I was sort of like, what? Oh gosh. And it just took me Mm. down. Like I wasn't ready for it. And so the rest of the day, I, I will tell you, I, I laid on the couch and watched a movie on Netflix and talked to my friend and was really, really like, I want to say not lazy, but just very, very kind to myself and very low key. And I think in recovery, and I I don't want to make us all sound like special snowflakes, but we are. I mean, I think we have to be gentle with ourselves. And there are people out there that don't have as many issues with anxiety and depression and addiction that can just get through their days without taking the time to be extra gentle. And for the longest time, I sort of was like, why can't I be like that? Like I have a friend, Elisa, who has never had a depressed day in her life. She just troops along. I don't know how she does it. I have grilled her (laughs) to see if she's lying. She's not. like what's really wrong with you and she's like nothing I'm just happy I'm like god like I hate her Um, but at the same time she just trips through life she's got a lot of energy and that's who she is and I am like constantly or was like why can't I be like Elisa like I, I need to be like that and I shouldn't be sitting on my couch feeling sad about my interview I should just get up and clean something you know like what would Elisa do and yet I just really think we need to give ourselves that grace and say we're in a category that is a little bit interesting and we need to be able to say, take it easy, girl, and give yourself a break and be gentle, you know, with yourself today. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the things that I that I one of the things that I really picked up from your first book was just that, like, you know, lean into it a little bit, get quiet, listen to it, tell someone or not, you know, but just, you know, if you don't feel guilty about yeah. taking yeah. a break. And you don't have to go tromping out. Cause that was the thing that happened. This is the very, and see, I didn't even realize until I just now said this. So this is like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. You should, yeah, you should charge. Uh, no, I should pay you. Never mind. At any rate, <laughs> thinking yesterday when I was miserable about that interview, the very first thoughts that came into my head were, okay, I should go clean something. Okay, no, wait, um, I should. And like, it was this list of things I should go do to Mm -hmm. fix how I was feeling. And instead, what I really needed to do was I called my husband. He kind of helps, you know, he's the engineer again, right? So then I talked to another friend and then I just kind of sat still and worked through it and was and didn't necessarily feel like I had to go clean my bathrooms. Like Mm -hmm. I used to obsessively clean my house when I was feeling out of control. That was one of the things that I did. And now I look around my house and it's a mess. And I'm, that's almost makes me feel good in the sense that I'm like, all right, you're, you're doing okay. (laughs) You know, your house is not spotless and that's good. It's a good sign of your mental state. I mean, it's not, it's not a cluttered mess either because I can't stand that, but it's not like, it's not perfect. Because yesterday, the very first thing I wanted to do when I got done with that interview is I I had that moment where I was like, I should do this. I should do that. I should call my mother, which would, oh, no, that would have been bad. And 
um, cause it was on a lit, I was on one of my to do things to do that day. It was to call her and I just felt like, Oh, slow down, breathe. Yeah. And, and you don't have to go to all these automatic, um, to do things. You can just kind of sit for a bit. Yeah. But yeah. That's a practice. Yeah. That's a definite practice. And, and I think only from being in recovery, um, have I learned to, to practice that? Like what you're saying, yeah. like that uncomfortableness, um, yeah. just sit with the discomfort. Yeah. And, you know, eat a, eat a piece of chocolate and right. drink <laughs> water and try to, you know, I do remember too, like at one point when I started watching the movie, the movie was a happy movie. I'm totally like, oh, oh, so into my Netflix, happy rom, romantic comedy, you know, cue. And like, part of me was like, you slug, like what kind of, you know, your kids are at school and your husband's at work and here you are sitting watching movies. What's wrong with you? And then I just was like, shut the F up. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Because I do feel like in terms of my recovery and in terms of my addiction issues, um, there are days when I really just need to unhook. And, yeah. 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 You know, um, I have one more thing I wanted to talk about quickly and, and we don't have to go into it because I want everyone, if they haven't read your books, I want them to read your books because you are so honest about marriage. And I just found that very, very refreshing in both of your books. I um, very grim light, don't I? <laughs> Well, you know, but it's real. It's reality. And, you know, you talk about resentments, about, you know, saying no, letting go of expectations. Um, Those are just, it was just very refreshing. (laughs) I love my husband, but the poor guy, I think... He told me yesterday, he's like, you haven't even let me read perfect yet. I'm like, yeah, I know there's a copy around here somewhere. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> but I never like brought it to him. Like, cause this one is talks about the low, um, low volume feelings in a marriage. And I really think actually he would be the one to tell you this. Cause I would always, you know, initially in early marriage, I'd, I'd be mad at him and yelling at him and saying something like, you make me feel so blah, blah, blah. And then he'd answer all pragmatically, honey, I can't make you feel anything. Blah, blah, blah. And I used to hate that, but it's true. Like it is true, isn't it? I really try to amp up. And I don't think it's just marriage. I think it's a lot of, um, our special relationships, our relationships where we're in love, our romantic relationships. I think we really try to amp them up as, and I, I totally trounce on, um, Jerry Maguire, which is a movie I love. It's a, it's a romantic comedy. I get it. But that whole, you completely me garbage. Yeah. It's Mm-mm. just, it's not true. I mean, right. I just don't want to hang that much pressure on Brian. And, but I did, I did for a long time. And I really did think that once I got married, I was quote done. Like I had met, I had I had met my apex. I was, you know, I finally got married at 36 and now I was all okay because, um, you know, once you find a husband and settle down, that's just it for you. Right. And then as time passed, and I know that sounds completely not a a feminist at all. I'm like horrible to admit that, but it really did. I had this image in my head of happily ever after with Brian as just, 
the, you know, happy every day kind of thing. And gosh, you guess how much I drank that first year of our marriage is because I was finding out that sometimes he was an asshole and sometimes, and sometimes we would fight. And I'm like, what? No, this is supposed to be awesome. And it's supposed to be sex like every day and <laughs> all this stuff. And it, it's not, I mean, our marriage is very comfortable. We are very in love, but we, I do not depend on him for my feelings anymore. And he never depended on me for his feelings. Right. <laughs> I'm sure. married. I'm married to Brian too. So yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And he taught me a lot in that whole, like, you can't, you know, my feelings should not be molded by another human kind of thing. Um, but I really had to get that myself, actually, because he would tell me that and then it would just incense me. Um, but now I get it. And I, I had to learn it on my own, really, and, and realize that the only thing that really completes me in this world is myself and my soul and how I'm trucking along with who I am. Right. right. I get a yeah. little scared, like when people post on Facebook pictures of their kids and then they say things like, this is my world. Right. I'm like, no, they shouldn't be, guys. First of all, they don't belong to you. They, you know, I, I, I kind of believe that we are giving them as our little charges to raise up, but they're not ours. Like, I know that sounds very distant and disconnected. No, no, I totally, I it's totally hard. get you. I mean, in fact, you know, losing my former, you know, non motherhood identity was one thing I drank over. Yes. So exactly. I, I, yeah. I felt so sad at the beginning when I had kids and I remember sitting and nursing one of them, which makes you really emotional anyhow because of the hormones. And I was crying because I would never go to Paris again, like, right. because I would never go to Paris because I had this baby now and my life was over. And that's just, first of all, that's not true. Well, you know, if I really want to go to Paris one day, I'll go back to Paris. But I really do feel like we put all this pressure on these little entities as well as the spouse, um, to make us quote, feel good. And, and then you get the other messages, which is, it's not about you. You're supposed to make them feel good. Right. And they're, you're supposed to serve the crap out of them. Like that's the other message I got. I remember a mom telling me that once in my church and saying, you know, marriage isn't about you. It's about him. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. It isn't about him. It is about just, being together, we are a partnership. He makes me laugh. That's truly the one thing my mom asked me when we first met is, does he make you laugh? I think the most important thing. Yeah, and same. That's it. Mm -hmm. like, and, and he's cute. And, and I, you know, I think he's cute and everything. He is standing here right now watching me say all that. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you guys been married? Just 12, I think 12 years now. 12 years. 12 long years. Right. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, well, um, no, I think I think it is to talk about this and like and to have a spouse. Um, everybody, I know our listeners um, really want to hear about you know what it's like to be married and sober and what does your spouse think and does your spouse support you? Well, I'm having a hard time with my spouse. Everybody has a very different experience, and for us, my husband um, kind of sound edits and produces the show, and I don't talk about that a whole lot because um, out of respect for him, he is a very private 
quiet guy. And yeah. um, it's not some of my story to tell some of our, you know, I mean, it's, it is. And there's other things that I would, I wouldn't want to betray him, but I know our listeners really want to hear this stuff, you know, so yeah. thank you yeah, for you talking about it is helpful. Yes. And Dana talks really... a lot about it in the, in, in your book. I did. Just and very I... honestly. Well, because he let me I did cover it with him before and I said because I talk about sex like I even lowered my voice I'm like I talk about sex we don't go into into the nitty-gritty but we did talk about like there's this there's this great book out there called and I don't I think the title is making love while sober or something like that and I can just remember this is kind of a tangent, but I can remember when I first got sober, I'm like, how in the world am I ever going to have a romantic, like, bow, 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 with Brian <laughs> ever again? Because right. sex for me was never associated with anything but booze. Like, it just always was paired. And and now, how am I going to have a relationship with him that's not this huge, romantic, passionate, you know, I, in perfect, I have at one of the end of my chapters, I have, if my marriage was a Nicolas Cage movie, like I always feel like that's kind of, I read that. That was really funny. And the, yeah, like it's supposed to be this huge romantic explosion of bad hair and bad acting and all that. And it's not. And, and, and yet Brian is so good about letting me talk about all this stuff. And I'm like, I wonder if there's a point where he's going to be like, enough. (laughs) Tired of being your guinea pig, but but you're right. When you get sober and you have someone else that's tagging along with you, I used to feel kind of um, jealous of my friends who got sober and they didn't have someone there with them when it happened because you didn't have that audience. Um, And there's also a lot at play. Like if you get sober and your husband, say, wants to keep drinking or even drinks kind of with red flags. Cause that happens a lot. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. what do you do? That's really hard. I was really blessed because he got rid of the alcohol in the house and, and I'm kind of one of those alcoholics in recovery that doesn't, can't really do well with booze around me. Like same. If, I'm yeah. the same. Yeah. I, none in my house either. Yeah. He has beer in his fridge. I'm like, Nope, I couldn't do it. I'm sorry. Too many, too many triggers for me. Anyhow. So he got rid of it all and he's a total normie and it's weird. And and I'm so lucky because that's exactly what I needed, though. I needed that kind of relationship that um, wouldn't push it and say, well, I want to have my beer fridge and all that jazz. And and I'm really lucky. But I do have to make sure I cover things with him first before I write about it because I just feel like, you know, just to be kind to him. And it's weird, too, because I am coming up against also now with my kids like this is a this is a writing thing, but you know, how much more can I talk about them? Like, yeah, before it- right. The older they get. Yeah. Yeah. I no. take advantage of that. I wonder about it sometimes. Because, and I do talk to them a little and Charlie is 10 now. And I caught him once reading, um, one chapter out of perfect at one point. I'm like, dude, do you want to like, <laughs> I got so uncomfortable. And I'm like, do you want to like talk about that or whatever? <laughs> like, no, this is really funny. I'm like, okay, <laughs> funny, <laughs> right. right on. Um, but, but that's kind of coming into this too. And we're, we're getting into that age where I need to start, re, you know, really covering things with them as well. And it, it's a new, that's a new thing for me. So, yeah. Yeah. I think middle school was where my son was like, I don't want you posting me on your page, you know, without you asking me like on Instagram. 
Or, Same. And I, with, and, I, yeah. and I used to write a, a like kind of um, about my home life and not home life, like gardening. It was like before I got sober. So I look at it. It was it was it makes me sad now to go look at it, actually, because it wasn't the whole story. I was no. definitely presenting. Um, I was trying to find beauty in my life. So it was all true. Yeah. But it was definitely not what I really wanted to share. And it wasn't the whole story. Yeah. But that's... when he said, when he asked that and I was like, you're right, that's not for me. So I would ask him when we're with my goddaughters, like, are you guys okay if I share this? And, and then over time now I've just kind of phased out. I know a lot of people probably look at my stuff and like, where's your husband and kid? Like they're in nothing. It looks like you're the single lady out in her art studio doing whatever. But oh, it's because I respect their privacy, you know, and, and they haven't signed on. So I have such a, tough time with that too because I feel like you know my whole platform especially with my blog it's called momsy blog for heck's sake you know it's all about being a mom and all that um so yeah I've been reading some stuff on that like what it's like to be a mom blogger and when your kids get older and stuff like that and like part of you is like maybe I'll just sort of switch it over and write about my cats like that but you can talk about how awkward it is or how that transition is because I think it's a a real thing you know I would love to read that that. parenting is so on display now and anyhow and I feel like we really do need um some pointers so I could write a little bit about that too because I feel like that's something that you know everything we do now as a mom it seems like oh I've got to take a picture of this and post it like it, it does mm-hmm. feel or it of, didn't happen you know if you thought it yeah and <laughs> I find myself like if you looked at my phone now I my stupid settings like my phone is full you know why because it's got 80 million flipping pictures on there of things that I feel like I should post and then I forget. Yeah. And everything <laughs> so like I've never once printed these pictures out. We'll never see them later because they're gone forever. And I, I really feel badly because it's like I just want it out there for these. Like think about it. If you go to the zoo with your kids, if you really are one of those mom that moms that's going to go to the zoo, uh, 400 people are going to know. You know, mm-hmm. it's important that those 400 people know. Right. <laughs> what a great mom you are for taking your kids to the zoo. <laughs> it's so weird. It's so much different than it used to be. And it is so like, oh, I don't know. You just kind of feel like you're giving a different picture of what's really going on. So right. hard. It's hard. My my friend Elkie is the um, the founder and she runs her own magazine called Mama Load. And I um, love magazine do you love that oh she's the best she's the best but I asked her when my son was in middle school I said how come you know because I write a little bit for her and I said how come nobody is writing about um you know tweens and and um and teenager and she's like "Uh, we get lots of submissions up until everyone's children are around middle school age and (laughs) right and she's like and so and her boys are the same and her boys the same age as my boy which is 15 and she's like and I've stopped writing about my oldest you know like it's um if there's a transition and so she's like I would love it if you would write something and then that yeah. made me really think about it and I was like oh I don't I don't yeah what do I say you know but that's because when I didn't... started writing about the truth about my life instead of writing yeah. about the fa- like a factual like look at what's happening with my kid like I started yeah. really turning that inward yeah and that, well, and that kind of is something that I'm doing now anyhow, because why not? Let's, let's just go back to me, the momsy, because the momsy has a lot of crap to talk about just in terms of my own life. But mm-hmm. it is, it's a troubling, um, not troubling, but just tricky. It's tricky. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. especially when it feeds your soul to write about your family and be funny. Like I just, I just, just uh, sent in an article about a funny thing that we all did together. Um, but then you always do kind of wonder like, well, am I taking this too far? Is it being, you know, so it's, it's, it's tenuous at best. Yeah. yeah. Well, we are, we can, it sounds like we could keep talking to you, Dana, for a while here, but we want to respect your time. Um, yeah. So I want to keep talking. Yeah. I love talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to share, we're going to share um, at the end, like where everybody can find you, but this is the part of the show where we, um, well, Sandra, are you good? Do you have any burning questions? Yeah, that you want to ask her? no, no. Sorry, I just I think took over. We covered there. everything I had. This was yeah. I. I love talking to you, Dana. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I enjoyed this too. And I was going to say, like, this is the sad part because you. I want you to picture when you hang up when we end this. Now I'm then I'm just going to kind of wander around my house <laughs> with my full cup of coffee, like staring out at the windows, going. What do I do now? Like, <laughs> I don't know how to continue my day. So it's always this weird, like, after I do an interview where I'm sort of like, okay, now I need to go clean the cat boxes. Like, right. <laughs> it just sucks. The house um, is going to be really clean today. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. This, this is a lot of fun. Oh, totally. We're glad to meet you. And I, um, at the end of the show, we usually share, um, we have a little thing called the Unruffled Toolbox. And for our listeners that don't know what that is, that's just like we ask our guests or we ask each other when we're talking with each other. Um, three items from the week or just in your life that you is like your go-to, either first to keep recovery intact or your sobriety or um, your creative life. So we wanted to ask you if you could share your three items with our listeners. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. So the first thing is persistence. And I always just kind of liken it to my inner, um, is it Dora or Dory? I can't remember now. It says just keep swimming. Yes. Um, <laughs> my idea with that was, um, in my life, I get very freaked out when bad feelings happen. And I think that I, I think I actually am kind of addicted to feelings in many ways. And I always think that when the bad feelings come, that that's always going to be that way and blah, blah, blah. And my brain plays some tricks on me that way. And I just sort of use my persistence quote, um, just, you know, one foot in front of the other, just keep swimming, just do the next right thing. Those are some mantras that I use. Um, and they help me get, just get through it. Good. And then I also like patterns and I talk about patterns a lot um, in my writing and I think of it as I start my day in a certain way. I have prayer, but it's short. I don't, this makes me sound super spiritual. It's not, I just sort of wake <laughs> up and say, how can I be of service today? And then when I go to bed at night, I always say, thank you for this day. And then I just have some patterns throughout the day that I try to stick with because, um, it just helps kind of keep my rhythm going and it goes right along with the persistence part. Um, and then the third thing I have is keep a ratty journal. <laughs> and what I mean by that is it's totally cool to go out and get like the leather bound, um, you know, fancy schmancy. Uh, but I always feel like those are a little too precious and then I don't want to write in them. Um, I just use notebooks now, spiral notebooks, and I have like three or four of them and I really don't care which one I write in. I just write. And that's, mm every day. And even if you're not a writer or feel like, I, I just think we need something to get it out every day. I think everybody, even not in recovery should be sort of doing that morning pages thing where we're getting 
the garbage in our head out onto paper, and then it sort of makes our untangled or it untangles stuff. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. or unravels. Let's say that. Yep. So there we go. Oh, I love those it. Those are very good. Very Great. good. Yeah, I use those comp those comp books that you use in high school. Exactly. I love those things. That's what I have. Mm-hmm. And they're and they make me feel kind of like I'm back in high school, and then I feel cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I stick a pencil on them, and I and I use them for all the time. And I do. I have like three or four floating around my house, and that's fine. I even have little notebooks. And you know what's the awesomest is I found my little son, eight year old son Henry, the other day, found a little notebook and put a pencil in it and was oh. writing stuff down. And I'm like, oh. She's become a weirdo like his mom. That's <laughs> all you can hope for, right, Dana? That's all we hope for. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I feel like you're like my sober twin. I am so glad we chatted. I, I totally yeah. identify with your story. And um, that's what yeah. this is all about. And I do feel like every time I talk to any other women in sobriety, it's just such a it's just such a validation and it's just like a big hug. Like you just yeah. feel like, Oh, these are my people. And I love these people. We are the lucky ones. We, yeah. Yeah. we are good. We're good for each other. And, and yeah, we rock. Yeah. Well, where can people find you Dana? So that, that we can, they can, and we're going to do it in the intro as well, but go ahead and end okay. the show with where they can find you. Well, I have my blog, um, Momsy blog. It's all M O M S I E B L O G dot com. And there's ways on there to find like my speaking tours and where I'll be. And then also like how to buy the book if you want to, but you can also find my books just under Amazon and Barnes and Noble and any independent bookseller as well. And if you're looking for me just in general, my Twitter handle and Facebook and all that is just at Momsy blog. Right. And your first book is called Bottled, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery. And your second book is How to Be Perfect Like Me. Yep. Oh, thank you, Dana. Thank you. You guys have a great day. It was a real pleasure talking with you both. It was so great to talk to you, Dana. Okay. Bye. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.